the MyExpert Solution Radio Network, MyExpertSolution.com, and its parent company are not responsible for the opinions expressed about products, services, opinions, and information in the following paid program. The information and opinions are the sole responsibility of the parties expressing them. Oh, welcome to My Expert Solution. Dr. Kevin Skinner here in studio. Do you feel anxious? Uh, do you worry a lot? Are you stressing about the economy? Well, today our guest uh, will help you understand the underpinnings of your anxiety. You'll be talk- we'll be talking about memories and your emotions. Uh, today's guest, uh, he's a singer and guitarist in this science-themed rock band, the Amygdaloids, and he also happens to be uh, one of the world's leading neuroscientists. Uh, Dr. Joseph Ledoux, uh, he's uh, the Henry and Lucy Moses Professor of Science and Professor of Neuroscience and Psychology at New York University. He's also the director of the Center for Neuroscience of Fear and Anxiety, a multi-university center in New York City devoted to using animal research to understand pathological fear and anxiety in humans. We want to welcome you to the show, Dr. Ledoux. Thank you. All right. Uh, you've got some great work that you're working on, a lot of research. And in fact, uh, we had you on for a couple, a couple weeks ago, and then you had uh, something that come up uh, related to some of your research. Uh, so you're doing a lot of research. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, yeah, that's, uh, that, that's what a scientist does. You know, you kind of uh, always have some projects going. Um, you know, at my stage in, in my career, I'm not actually in the lab that much, but I have a full team of researchers that are uh, pursuing the uh, research that's consistent with what I've been doing for the past 25 years or so. And, um, you know, they, uh, they buy into the basic concept, but some of them generate their own ideas. And, uh, you know, as long as it's when the, within the basic theme that we work on here, which is fear, anxiety, emotion, memory, things like that. Very interesting. You're also the author of the book, uh, The Emotional Brain, a very good book. I've got that in my hand. And the other book, The Synaptic Self, or Synaptic Self, two very good books as I go through them trying to understand more about uh, the brain being a clinician. And individuals who are dealing with a lot of anxiety, uh, in fact, a lot of other uh, authors, uh, Daniel Goleman has used uh, some of your work uh, in his book uh, on uh, uh, on emotion, the emotional intelligence. So your right. work's uh, cited all over the world. Um, in fact, uh, this summer you received a, war- a reward for neuroscientists. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, sorry, what, what award? Uh, you were in Europe. Uh, I was just reading about it. Uh, oh, um, well, I re- received the uh, uh, Grisola, Grisolia Prize in Valencia, Spain this past spring. Uh, and then a couple of years ago I received the uh, uh, Fisson Foundation prize in, in Spain, uh, so got a couple of uh, European prizes there under my belt. Well, that's fantastic. Um, and those are you know, recognizing my contributions in the general area of uh, emotion research. Yeah, which is absolutely phenomenal. In fact, I will be digging in that a little bit later. Uh, but before we do that, let's have a little bit of fun. Uh, tell us about the band that you're in, the Amygdaloids. Well, the Amygdaloids are a band made up of scientists. Um, we're Three of us are uh, neuroscientists, and one is a biologist uh, who works on environmental science issues. But he's a closet neuroscientist as well. A closet. Um, <laughs> the, you know, the band is really, um, it's, it's a hobby. It's a fun thing to do, but we, we take it pretty seriously. We play in New York City once a month or so, um, and we play rock and roll. Uh, if you walked into the club and heard us playing, you wouldn't necessarily realize that we were playing music about mind and brain. You would just think, well, it's just regular rock-themed love songs. Uh, but if you listen carefully, the songs all have uh, some information about how the brain works and how it helps us, how it gets us in 
trouble and so forth. Yeah. And it, we deal with, you know, big issues, too. Like uh, we have a song called The Mind-Body Problem. Um, we have, and that one's about, you know, again, we take a, an issue that's, that's very important in neuroscience and psychology and philosophy. And in this case, we try to give it a little humorous twist within the context of a love song. So the guy's singing, I've got a mind-body problem. I don't know what to do. My body wants you so, uh, but my mind says no. Uh, it's about a guy who's broken up with the girl, and the girl wants to come back, and he doesn't think she should come back. She's a lot of trouble. So it's that kind of stuff. And others are more serious, uh, just real, uh, you know, heartbreaking love songs. And uh, we've got a new album coming out in a couple of months uh, with a couple of songs that are being sung with me uh, by Roseanne Cash, seven-time Grammy Award nominee. So we're very lucky to have her. And uh, uh, look forward to having that come out it should be a lot of uh should be good very fun you know and if if to our listeners if you uh go to uh the web you type in the amygdaloids and uh, you'll actually be able to find uh some of this uh, on youtube i was actually watching some of it earlier uh very interesting and a lot of fun you guys you seem to have a lot of fun together yeah we do and you know the youtube live things those are kind of old so we're not uh, very good back then we're a lot better now but uh, still you can see a little see us having fun. Well, I look forward uh, to seeing the update there. Yeah, well, our website is www.amygdaloids.com, so it's uh, easy to find, and you can see all kinds of things there. Yes, and, and, and listen to some of the music as well. Yeah. All right, uh, recently, this is uh, shifting gears a little bit, uh, you wrote an article on the Huffington Post titled, Can Memories Be Erased? A uh, very interesting article about uh, some of the research you're doing on, yeah, as we take the memories uh, out of our long-term into the short-term memory, uh, some of the things that we can do with them. Can memories be erased? Right. Well, let me just first say a little bit about the blog. I, I do occasionally write a blog um, on Huffington Post um, on neuroscience and the brain and psychology and so forth, whatever. Like If something comes to mind that seems interesting to me and that I think lay people would be interested in, I, you know, write a little essay on it. So those appear there. So you can check there every now and then, just pop my name into it, and you'll see all the things that uh, I've written. There haven't been that many, it's five or six of them there, but I put them in every couple of months. So it's not a daily event, but they're there. So in this particular case, I was writing about <clears throat> some research that we had done uh, over the last, I don't know, uh, eight years or so on the possibility of erasing memory. I mean, we went into this pretty objectively. It's not like uh, we had some kind of axe to grind or we're looking to make a mess of things, but we, we did an experiment and published it in the uh, journal Nature in 2000 that kind of set off a whole wave of new research and controversy in the field about exactly what a memory is and how it's made and stored and what happens when you use it. And basically, what we found was that... Um, when we uh, put a drug into the brain, into the part of the brain that forms a memory of danger, memory about something dangerous, um, that memory um, is no longer available the next time it's retrieved. So the experiment goes something like this. A rat it learns to be afraid of some stimulus. Then two or three days later, after the memory is fully formed and stored in the brain in a permanent way, uh, we expose the rat to the stimulus again. So the memory is now retrieved or taken out uh, so that it can be used. And if you inject into the brain a drug that blocks protein synthesis in the part of the brain that forms and stores that memory, then 
a day later, when you test that memory, it's gone, mm-hmm. inaccessible, or maybe even erased. We don't know. So the bottom line is that each time you use a memory, you change that memory, and you have to restore it through the process of protein synthesis, or it ain't going to be there next time. Um, so one way of thinking about this is your memory is only as good as your last memory of the same situation. So each time you use a memory, you change it and restore it, and it gets updated. In so other words, so, so in other words, your memory is always changing unless you, I mean, even if you pull it out, it, it's, it's altering itself as you, right. as you experience life. A memory is not a carbon copy of a past experience. It's stored in the brain in a, a kind of piecemeal fashion. And when you take it out, it has to be reconstructed. Psychologists have known this for a long time. You, you have to you recreate a memory when you take it out. And the fidelity of that memory, how accurate it is in terms of the original experience, um, will be influenced by how well you put it back together. And how well you put it back together can be determined by a lot of different things, how stressed you are at the time, um, you know, just how your brain is working at that moment, how strong the memory was when it was initially encoded and so forth. So there are a lot of factors that go into this, but one one thing that seems to be absolutely true is that when you use a memory, when you take it out, you are changing it. Imagine that we're walking down, I'm walking down the street and I meet you, um, and then two days later I see you again. Um, And in the meantime, you've heard something about me that's not so nice. So your first memory of me is changed by the second, and when you see me the next time, you put that information into, you update that memory and change what you experience, and you tell me you heard that awful thing about me, and I convince you that you didn't, so you've changed the memory a third time in that case. So each time you take it out, it's an opportunity to alter it. Basically, it's an adaptive thing because you're updating the memory, you wouldn't want the, your memories to always be exactly the same. You'd never be able to change how you felt about something. So um, memory retrieval is an opportunity to update. Now, if you block, what happens during that time, though, is that the memory becomes fragile and has to be restored because it's now a new memory. And to store memory, you need protein synthesis. Otherwise, that memory is, will uh, dissipate. So if you... Um, from the experimental point of view, that gives you the opportunity to go in and manipulate the memory during that little moment. You have a couple of hours in which it can be changed or altered. And we do these experiments in animals, obviously. Um, and so when you do that, you can block the memory from being um, uh, available later by blocking protein synthesis. You can also do things with other drugs that will affect that process in a, a less specific way. For example, um, Drugs like beta blockers, which many people take to control blood pressure and heart rate, um, but also for stage fright and and other things, Uh, these drugs are acting in the noradrenergic system of the brain. Um, And if you give a beta blocker after the retrieval of a memory, it has to be timed with the retrieval of the memory, uh, it will do the same thing as the protein synthesis inhibitor. In other words, disrupt your memory. Hmm. But if you give a beta stimulator, a beta agonist, it will enhance that memory. So you can make memory go up or down, you can improve it or weaken it depending on what happens during that retrieval time. 
Very interesting. You know, as a clinician, this is absolutely exciting to me because when I'm working with clients who have a lot of fear or a lot of anxiety, sometimes it's based upon memories of their past that right. seem to be unresolved. And, and that means that as we, as we pull those memories out or as we talk about them, we can actually uh, change that, that memory, uh, right. update it based upon their current perception. And here's some advice for you as a clinician. Never leave the patient in a negative mood when the strike when the clock strikes 50 minutes and it's time to go because that's the last moment. That's what gets stuck is the memory for, until the next time. Very, very important. And, you know, one of the things that I do with people on that is I actually encourage them to continue writing uh, mm-hmm. throughout the week as, as they continue to learn about the experiences, They're trying to have them make more uh, sense or synthesis of that memory. Right. So Now, one of the, one of the potential uses of this kind of approach is in the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder where people have really profound and difficult traumatic memories uh, that are constantly intruding into their lives and haunting them from some horrible experience that they've had. Um, And the idea here is that we might be able to give these people some kind of drug or behavioral manipulation that uh, prevents the restorage of the memory after it's been retrieved and therefore weakens some of that emotional impact of those memories. That's a great point. Uh, We need to go to our first break, but that brings me to a question. You you did some writing after 9-11 on how individuals could deal with some of that uh, post-traumatic stress. I'd love to have you talk a little bit about that and some of your suggestions. Uh, We're going to go to our first break. We'll be right back. Okay. Did you know that about 18 million people have had at least one episode of depression? If you are struggling with depression, you're not alone. At My Expert Solution, we connect you with the top experts in the nation who are ready and eager to help you overcome your struggles. You can submit your personal, real-life questions from the privacy of your own home or office and get a personalized audio response created in response to your exact question. The response is recorded in the expert's own voice, so you don't miss out on the vital personalized connection you get from a face-to-face consultation, but you get your answer without having to wait for an appointment. Don't let depression rule your life. We're here to help. Ask your question today at www.myexpertsolution.com. You've heard it on the news and read it in the papers. People all over the nation are losing their jobs in layoffs as companies struggle to regain their footing in the present economy. Whether you're employed or looking for new or better employment, now more than ever, it's important to stop risking your future because of addiction. Addictions affect more parts of your life than you may think. Alcohol and drug addictions affect job performance and dependability, which puts your future at risk. You can lose job security or miss out on opportunities, and your relationships can be seriously damaged. Don't stay trapped in the addictions that keep you from the happiness and security you deserve. Get the tools you need for success today at MyExpertSolution.com. Are you looking for answers? Are you searching for real, trustworthy solutions for the issues you face? You don't have to wade through the internet wondering if the advice you come across can really work for you. At My Expert Solution, our experts have the knowledge and real-life experience to answer your real-life questions and help you reach your goals, whatever they may be. Maybe you have questions about your health or finances, or maybe you're just looking for some way to boost your own sense of self-worth. Our experts are here for you, offering solutions, advice, and inspiration. Join them for My Expert Solution, the show where we discuss the real-life topics that matter most. My Expert Solution, weekdays on www.myexpertsolution.com. 
Welcome back to My Expert Solution. Dr. Kevin Skinner here in studio with our very special call-in guest, Dr. Joseph Ledoux, calling in from New York, uh, who is a researcher at heart, but he is doing some significant work on fear and anxiety. And uh, one of the things that uh, you've written about, Dr. Ledoux, is uh, this after 9-11, a lot of people watched those planes going into the World Trade Center and just uh, creating literally a lot of fear inside of all of us. And uh, you had some great suggestions that I've, I've read about. Can you talk with our listeners about some of the things that you recommended? Yeah, sure. The, uh, again, this is all based on research on rats. In the rats, we found that um, um, when they're afraid, they, they are frozen in fear, basically. So if, you, if they've experienced a sound that's been you know, related to an electric shock or something bad in the past, when they hear that sound, they, they freeze. And we call that passive coping because the animal is just sitting there uh, unable to do anything else. Um, but we decided to try to uh, teach the animals how to actively cope with their fear, in other words, for them to gain control over their fears. And the way we did this was um, we put them in, an, in a novel chamber and played the tone that made them freeze. But if they made any movement at all, the tone went off. So after several days, they learned to run to the other side of the chamber and either tone the tone, tone off, or if they did it fast enough, to completely eliminate the tone from their lives. So um, we then studied how this works in the brain, and we found that uh, a part of the brain that's very important for fear that I've worked on a lot is called the amygdala. And what we found in terms of this passive uh, fear response versus active uh, coping with the fear is that different parts of the amygdala uh, were involved in that. So the passive response is the natural response. It's dominated by an area called the central nucleus of the amygdala that generates freezing, uh, basically generates the fight-flight response. You've got uh, sympathetic arousal, uh, blood pressure and heart rate are rising, stress hormones are being released. You're just in a state of just terrified fear. Now, uh, the other response, though, involves a different part of the amygdala called the basal nucleus. And that doesn't connect to any of that emotion stuff. It connects into pathways that are more involved in voluntary instrumental behavior. Um, and so in order for the stimulus to get from a pathway that avoids the central nucleus and goes to the basal nucleus and then into those more adaptive responses, you've got to somehow inhibit the, the uh, passive coping uh, response. So we think there, there are connections in the brain that suppress the output of the central nucleus. And that once you stop freezing, that allows you to actively cope. So in other studies in rats, what we're able to show is that if we actually lesion, in other words, put a, uh, put a, a hole in the central nucleus and basically blow it out of the, the brain uh, so that it's no longer a factor, uh, animals are much more capable of engaging in this kind of active coping uh, strategy. So a big effort in neuroscience and psychology should be to understand how to better inhibit the central nucleus of the amygdala so that we can take more positive, adaptive uh, strategies. So in terms of the 9-11 analogy, people were sitting in front of the TV watching the um, buildings go up in flames, planes fly into the buildings, buildings in flames, blah, blah, blah. So you're just locked into this frozen fear response, so much so that you can't get up and, and go to work. Um, 
but we were told, and it was good advice, you know, let's, you have to figure out how to get back, get on with life, get back to work, and so forth. And um, when each time you took that step away from the passive coping and relieved that fear, that reinforced the step, just as in the rats, when taking the step turns the tone off, they're able to take the next step and the next step. So the basic idea is that even though it's hard, each step you take away from the thing that's making you afraid uh, towards something more positive uh, reinforces the positive step and allows the next positive step to take place. You know, and you, you use the word positive there. Uh, a lot of people may have turned to other behaviors to escape from that. Uh, yeah. So you're talking about doing something positive. Any ideas what some of those positive things might be for individuals? Well, you know, it's one of the issues that... Um, we struggle with in this field is that um, basically what the animals are doing is avoiding danger when they do that. Now that sounds like a good idea, but as you know, as a clinician, avoidance is the hallmark of anxiety disorders. Mm -hmm. uh, people will go to great lengths to avoid being in a situation where their fear and anxiety are going to be aroused. So a patient with panic disorder very effectively avoids having a panic attack by staying home all the time. That's not a positive thing to do because they can't go to work, and so it disrupts other aspects of their lives. So it's a kind of fine line between, you know, what's going to prevent the fear and yet still allow you to be uh, actively participating in life. And I don't have a, you know, a, a good uh, answer to exactly how you do that, but I think that's the key. And I think I think your point there, and what I've found successful with my clients, is that something positive may be something that they enjoy. For some people, it's playing the piano. For other people, it might be cooking food. Other people, it's going out and enjoying the the outdoors, uh, going for a walk on a on a path or a trail that they're they're accustomed to and feel safe in. Sure. Those types of things. So I I, th I really believe in the concept of getting up and doing something, even right. though as as you mentioned it, mentioned it's really hard. Yeah, and they you know the. Uh People of uh, therapists and uh, clinicians have picked up on this idea and uh, have begun to develop um, um, strategies. For example, um, um, a psychologist I know has developed a, uh, a therapy for rape victims where they actually have to physically engage with intruders. It's kind of a role playing thing, but they go into really rough physical fights with intruders so that they can kind of unlock those circuits by um, engaging the body. It's really important, I think, to engage the body in the therapeutic process because it's, it's not going to all happen in your head. You have to integrate the, the cognitions and emotions in your head with physical responses in your body and have the feedback from those bodily responses be integrated into that whole process. So activating the senses in that process. Senses and, and movements and uh, making it a whole body therapy rather than simply a mind therapy. Interesting. Now, uh, you've talked a, a little bit about the amygdala. Can you talk with our listeners a little bit about what it does and how it works? In our, what, what's its function? Well, that's, a, you know, that's kind of a debated topic. What, what is the function of the amygdala? I think um, you know, if we go back in, in uh, the history of neuroscience a little bit, in, say, the 1960s, people used to ask questions. Well, what, is, what does the amygdala do? What does the hippocampus do? Um, and when I started getting into this field, I, I found that a very confusing thing because it seemed like those structures were uh, doing a lot of things. So I took a different approach, which was to say, I'm not going to ask how a structure like the amygdala works. I'm going to ask how fear works. 
And if it takes me to the amygdala or to the hippocampus or to the medulla oblongata, I don't care. I'm just, I just want to start at the beginning of the pathway and go all the way through the brain. So in the, what I chose to work on was how a rat becomes afraid of a sound that predicts an electric shock. So the starting point had to be the ear because that's how the, the sound is going to get into the brain. Uh, so the, I followed the stimulus through the auditory system and showed that you didn't need all of the auditory pathways. In other words, the highest level of the auditory system, which is the auditory cortex, is not needed. If we damage the auditory cortex, rats could still become afraid of a sound uh, that led to, uh, to danger, that predicts danger. So, uh, but if, they, if we damage the auditory thalamus, which is one step down from the cortex, they couldn't learn to be afraid of the sound. But if we damage the amygdala, again, they couldn't learn. So we were able to, and then we showed by sophisticated tracing techniques that the auditory thalamus connects directly with the amygdala. So that told us that the stimulus had to go up to the thalamus in the auditory system, then take a, uh, a sharp turn and go into the amygdala without ever going to the neocortex. Now that was really important because what it said was that our emotional responses could not only be elicited, but could also be learned by subcortical brain systems. Uh, because the subcortical systems are outside the conscious processing capacities of the brain, means our emotions are being learned unconsciously. Hmm. doesn't mean that they aren't also being learned consciously, but what it does mean is that there is an unconscious learning system that exists in parallel to any kind of conscious learning that, that you're undergoing. And... Once you recognize that, you see why it is that people don't always understand the origin of their fears, and they're not crazy for not remembering or not, uh, not being able to figure out why they're afraid of something. It's probably because this low level of processing, um, this low level of learning has taken place so that the stimuli that come in will always be able to activate that system uh, outside of conscious awareness. So no amount of... Um, talk therapy, so to speak, is going to be able to change that because the parts of the brain involved in talk therapy don't talk directly with the amygdala. There are no connections. So that, again, reinforces the importance of bringing the body and behavioral responses into the therapeutic process. So for something like a phobia, um, what's called cognitive behavioral therapy, which I'm sure you're well aware of, mm-hmm. um, and it, where you expose the subject to the phobic stimulus in a certain context and give supporting information and so forth is much more effective than having the patient just kind of think about why they might be afraid of the snake or, or whatever, uh, because it, it accesses, it, makes, it takes advantage of the pathways that actually exist you in know, the brain. Which means if you're trying to figure out the why of your anxiety, you might be asking the wrong question. Uh, it might be very hard to ultimately answer the question why, and... Um, you know, so I guess sometimes um, there's discussion about whether you should be treating symptoms or actually getting to the core, um, but it may not be possible to always get to the core, and if you can get rid of the symptoms, the patient's probably better off. Great point. Now, in your book, uh, The Emotional Brain, you talk about the low road and the high road. Is that kind of what you were just referring to? That's exactly what I was talking about, uh, subcortical pathways into the amygdala allow the amygdala to learn and control fear responses without the cortex being involved. 
So, so if a person's emotions, as uh, is referred to, are hijacked, really you're saying that could be a, a, a kind of an unconscious, subconscious thing where you're feeling anxiety, no explanation why. You go up to your right. brain and say, "What's why am I feeling this?" Maybe no explanation. Uh, how? What's the interchange between then the neocortex and the amygdala at that point? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the hijacking of uh, the amygdala. I think that's a phrase that uh, Dan Goldman used in uh, emotional intelligence as he was reviewing my research as part of uh, his uh, theme about how emotions work. Um, so the hijacking, I mean, it's, there are different ways to think about that, but I think the easiest way to think about it is um, that if your emotions are being triggered by information that you're not aware of, they've essentially become hijacked. Um, and it's possible for that to happen because of these low-level inputs, this low road directly into the amygdala that doesn't go to the neocortex. So, so part of that is, is we're anticipatory beings. If we're anticipating something that's going to go wrong, mm-hmm. like with fear, as we anticipate that, then one of the steps would be, what would we do with that? Um, in other words, if I'm starting to starting to feel a little bit of anxiety, I'm, okay. I'm starting to worry, and, right. and I don't know where it's coming from, right. what do I do? Okay, well, again, the, the body is uh, an important part of the puzzle. So um, one of the things that, uh, for example, people who meditate um, do is use controlled breathing to get into a kind of relaxed state. Um, and... Control breathing, you know, it's said, well, that's Eastern hocus-pocus. Actually, it, it's based on, uh, it's now based on Western science because we, we understand exactly what's happening there. When you breathe, what you're doing is causing the parasympathetic nervous system controlled by the vagus nerve to dominate over the sympathetic nervous system. So what you're doing is causing the, the, the slowing down of the heart the, uh, the um, relaxation of the muscles in the body and in the gut and so forth. Uh, and then that's feeding back to your brain and telling your brain to slow down the alarm response, make everything more relaxed. So by controlling breathing, you're actually entraining your brain into a more peaceful, calm state, uh, in which, at which point you're able to then make better decisions about what to do because you're not in fight-flight mode so much. You use the interesting word there, train the brain, and a lot of the work with neuro... In-train, I said. In, oh, in-train, okay. In-train, it means like, uh, it's like when, you're, when you have jet lag and you go out and get in the sun, that helps reset your clock. Uh, okay. So what I'm talking about is the, uh, when the body is sending aroused signals to the brain, that's going to cause the brain to be in the hypervigilant state. But if the body is sending calm signals to the brain, then that hypervigilance will be reduced and you'll be uh, in a more pleasant state. Great point. All right, so we need to go to our next break. But before we go to the break, uh, just something for us to think about. We're going to come back and we're going to talk about these memories. Individuals might have some of these uh, what maybe trapped memories or fear-based memories. Uh, is it possible to extinguish them from the mind or do they linger with us uh, into our uh, adult years and maybe even until we die? Uh, I'd like to talk with you when we come back about that when we come right back. Sure thing. Did you know that according to the National Center for Health Statistics, 43% of marriages end in divorce? 
With statistics like that, it's no wonder that people are approaching relationships so cautiously. But what if that statistic didn't have to affect you? What if you were part of the successful 57% and helped that number to rise? If you are getting married or starting a new relationship, the relationship experts at My Expert Solution are here to support you. They're standing by to provide guidance on how to create a fabulous relationship right from the start. Log on now to MyExpertSolution.com and get the tools you need to build a foundation that will result in a lasting and satisfying relationship. After all, great relationships are meant to last a lifetime. At My Expert Solution, you have access to books, articles, audio recordings, courses, and training materials provided by top health and wellness professionals, available from the privacy and confidentiality of your personal computer. My Expert Solution is about preventative health care, finding the solutions to small issues before they become bigger, more costly problems. Our experts are ready to respond to your unique questions. Ask your questions today and get rid of the stress and anxiety in your life. Learn how to cope with divorce, mend relationships, overcome addictions, and more. You don't have to wait to get the answers you need for success. Ask your questions at MyExpertSolution.com today. Be happy, stay happy. According to a report published in 1996, happily married men miss work less often, keep their jobs longer, and are considered by employers to be more dependable and motivated than unhappily married men. Personal relationships at home are the foundation for success and security in the workplace. If you are running a business, it's critical to your bottom line to ensure that both you and your employees have the tools you need to keep that foundation strong. The experts at My Expert Solution have the advice and solutions you need. For more information on how your employees can be happy and stay happy with better relationships, visit www.myexpertsolution.com. Welcome back to My Expert Solution. Dr. Kevin Skinner here in studio with our special call and guest, Dr. Joseph Ledoux. We're talking about uh, anxiety, the emotions, fear. And uh, before the break, question for you, Dr. Ledoux. Uh, memories, are they extinguished from the brain or do they linger with us? Well, you know, in the field we sometimes say fear is forever. And we have to understand this, understand this from the evolutionary point of view. If you're an animal living out in the wilds of nature uh, with all sorts of dangerous things around you every time you look for something to eat or, uh, or drink, um, you have to be pretty vigilant about things. If you encounter a predator and are lucky enough to escape, you better remember everything about that situation, where it occurred, the sounds that happened just before the predator struck, uh, any smells or uh, anything else that, were go- that was going on at the time should be encoded and stored in your brain because those are things that are predicting that kind of attack. So um, you, you tend to learn it in a single exposure. It's not something that you need to practice over and over to get it right. It's one trial learning, and you better hold on to that memory for the rest of your life because the things that are dangerous today are likely to be dangerous tomorrow. So that's why fear is more or less forever. Now, we can weaken the fear, uh, and we can weaken it by extinction or exposure. Um, The problem is, and and this is a big problem clinically, is that the weakening of fear is a kind of fragile process. So in the laboratory, 
uh, you can easily see that fears that have been extinguished will spontaneously recover. If you wait a, a couple of weeks, they just kind of pop back up to some extent. Uh, or they can be brought back by, uh, say, stress. Um, and this is a common problem for people uh, who have fear disorders as well. So let's say a person is successfully treated for a fear of heights, but then the patient's mother dies, a stressful event, the fear comes back. So the fear is always seems to, always seems to be in the brain, uh, just waiting to pop back up in case it's needed. Um, that's the bad news. Now, the good news is, in, in very recent research, uh, we've been able to develop a protocol for exposure therapy in rats that actually prevents the fear from coming back. Very um, interesting. And it's, it's a little complicated, but it has to do with two things. On the, the, the most simplistic level, it has to do with the timing of the stimuli that are presented in the exposure session. At the mechanistic level, what you have to do is trigger that reconsolidation process that we talked about earlier, where uh, we can so-called erase memories. And so what you have to do is you give one exposure to the stimulus, which triggers that protein synthesis-dependent reconsolidation process that restores the memory. And while that memory is in that vulnerable, fragile state that I tell you about, you then do the rest of the exposure therapy so that what gets stored in the new memory is that this is a safe signal rather than a danger signal. And when that happens, we don't get spontaneous recovery or reinstatement of the fear by stress and so forth in the rats. And we've, uh, uh, we have a paper coming out in the journal Nature that shows something uh, similar in humans. Very interesting. So the humans are going to be doing something there as that memory's been, uh, I don't know, is it called pulled out or restored? Retrieved. Retrieved. So the memory's been retrieved. Something's happening in that exposure that then allows them to see it from a different... uh, Well, I wouldn't put it in those kinds of cognitive terms. It's more mechanical than that. What happens is that retrieval activates a certain uh, neurotransmitter um, receptor in the brain that enables certain molecular processes to be engaged uh, and that interacts with the timed extinction session in exactly the right way to make this happen. Hmm. Uh, and we, again, we understand this much better in, in the animal model than we do in humans, but we have some evidence for it in, in people as well. Very interesting. I'll look forward to seeing, seeing more on that. So, in your book, uh, The Synaptic Self, uh, you write about the dopamine and how it is an anticipatory chemical. How does dopamine interact with uh, maybe fear in the amygdala and those type of things? Yeah, so, you know, we, dopamine has the reputation of being like the, the feel-good juice in the brain, you know, the pleasure chemical. But that's actually the wrong way to think about it. Um, and it's one of those kind of myths that have, that's come out in the... Uh, popular press and has been promoted as by, by scientists as well sometimes, uh, but it's actually wrong. So imagine this. Again, take an animal in the wild. He's hungry. He's looking for food. That's not a pleasant state. The pleasant state comes when you find the food and eat it. When is dopamine involved in that 
in that sequence of events, during the search or during the consumption. It turns out it's only involved in the search. So it's not about pleasure. It's about uh, driving behavior towards goals. And once you find the goal, dopamine is no longer involved. Uh, other, other things kick in that are involved in consumption and the, the post-consumption process is where you might feel the rewarding effects and so forth. So dopamine is all about anticipatory goal-directed behavior, not about consuming a goal that once you find it. In the case of fear, it'd be, it'd be something very similar, that in an aroused state, things like dopamine and norepinephrine are released in the brain, and they help guide you uh, towards the goal. The goal, in this case, is safety rather than you know a goal object that you would approach. So you're looking for uh, a safe place to approach rather than a goal object to approach. Okay. So, so for an individual who's dealing with anxiety or, or type of fear, that dopamine in, the, in that situation, the goal could be to get up and do something different. Right. Uh, and that's really what the dopamine is, its purpose in that situation. Um, yeah, we don't, we don't have as much information about dopamine in aversive states uh, like fear as we do in positive. But I, I think what you said is not terribly off-key. So it's roughly in that area, but we just don't know as much at this point. Okay. Okay. Very interesting. Now, today, a lot of people are wondering about the swine flu. Uh, maybe some people are even paralyzed uh, by that fear that they, right. maybe they're going to get it. Advice for these individuals who have that kind of fear? Well, you know, I think, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, a, it's a rational fear, right, that... Uh, we are told daily that uh, this is a pandemic, that a certain number of people are going to get it. Uh, but we have to look at the facts, and the people who get it are not that sick. You know, I guess we worry about our children more than ourselves at, uh, at my age, and I assume your age as well, uh, because the, the stats are that it's going to affect young people more than uh, older people. But, you know, it, it, you know, how do you deal with that kind of fear? I think, again, it's important to take a breath, as they say, which, again, is not hocus-pocus. It's, it's real. You take that breath, and it begins to slow down the process. And because what, you know, the, the one thing about fear and anxiety is it's, uh, it's contagious between people, and it's also contagious within yourself. So once you become afraid, your thought process is just go down that road. Once you become anxious, that's where your thoughts will always be headed. So you need to sh- short-circuit it before you go too far down the road, because the further down the road you go, the harder it is to pull it back. So as soon as that anxiety begins to come on, if you do those little deep breaths and try to you know, get the parasympathetic system to dominate and slow down the sympathetic response, you'll be better off. Um, that will help you, and as I said, fear is contagious. And so it will help the people around you. So within a family, if one person is anxious, the whole family is going to be anxious because fear spreads. It's contagious. Um, so, you know, parents should definitely do the, as good a job as they can to, with, to rein in the fear and anxiety that they have because their children will pick it up and they will become anxious. So a lot of, uh, you know, there's a, a strong genetic component to certain mental disorders, um, but the shared family environment is equally important. So even if 
a child has no heritable anxiety, they will acquire anxiety from an anxious parent. And maybe that refers to what you were talking about earlier about maybe an, um, not necessarily in the forefront of the mind, but something that's happening in maybe implicit memories, yes. these memories that you don't really have a, a sense of that's where right. they're coming from. That's right. All right. So, so the key functions of the amygdala, you, you've done a lot of research on, on the fear. What other th- uh, functions does the amygdala have? Well, I guess the, the more general function that we're coming to understand is that it's very important in detecting the value of stimuli. It's not just about danger, but also things that are good. So it's kind of like a, a value computer. Is something good, is something bad? And once, once it has that value assigned to it, the stimulus, that information then will go through different routes to either elicit those passive uh, responses that we talked about in the case of fear. If, if you have a um, um, if you have a dangerous stimulus, you, you freeze. So that would be the automatic response to a dangerous stimulus. The automatic response to a positive stimulus is to approach. It's not passive; it's it's active, but it's it's elicited. Mm-hmm. So the difference. A key difference in the way I'm going to talk to you about these things is between responses that are elicited and responses that are emitted or performed willfully. So the initial response to any emotional stimulus, whether it's positive or negative, is going to be elicited, automatic, unconscious. So a bomb goes off, you're going to freeze. Then you have you say, well, I better get the hell out of there. So, you know, this is not a good situation. What should I do? Uh, and let's say that your child had ran to the concession stand to get something to eat, and that's near where the bomb went off. So your natural tendency to run away would be to actually instead approach the bomb. Uh, so there you make that transition from reaction to action, and when, once you go into the action mode, you start making uh, decisions about what form of action you should be taking. Same thing with positive stimuli. So you would naturally begin to approach a positive stimulus. Um, But in some cases, approach is not necessarily the right thing, and you have to short-circuit that and withdraw if it turns out that the thing you thought was good is not good. So in that situation, I mean, it does both positive, if I can use the words, both positive and negative, depending depending on whatever the function needs, needs to be. Right. All right. So does the amygdala have anything to do with addictions as well? Uh, well, yes, because one of the most powerful and a powerful incentive stimuli or positive stimuli is an addictive drug. So what, what the amygdala uh, is very good at detecting is learned incentive value. So a stimulus that predicts a reward is a learned incentive. So, for example, if you're a rat and you're hungry, a stimulus that um, predicts the delivery of food is something that you like. You'll actually do some work to obtain that stimulus because it means it's likely to to lead to food. Um, An addictive drug is a a very powerful incentive, and so the stimuli associated with addictive drugs become powerful conditioned incentives. So the paraphernalia associated with drug use are very powerful stimuli that can uh, trigger relapse and so forth. So the, um, the amygdala is involved in addiction 
to that extent that, that it processes conditioned incentives, um, which basically just means conditioned emotional stimuli that predict some reward or aversion, um, and uh, the amygdala is predicting that rewarding effect of uh, some stimulus that predicts the, the actual drug. So, yes, it's involved in those processes as well. Very, very interesting, uh, especially uh, for a clinician like myself. I, I, I see all the work that you're doing, and I'm very interested. Uh, the Center for Neuroscience of Fear and Anxiety, can you talk a little bit about um, what you guys are doing there? And it looks like you're working with some major institutions. Talk about some of the research that you're currently doing. Well, unfortunately, the, the, uh, the Center for the Fear, of Fear and Anxiety is um, pretty much over, uh, it was a project that was funded by the National Institute of Mental Health, uh, and those projects were renewable every five years, but you could only renew them twice. I see. And so we went through our second renewal, and now um, the funding is over. So sadly, we, we have to disband. It, it was a great project. Uh, involved five different institutions within New York City, uh, like Cornell Medical School, Rockefeller University, Sinai Medical School, NYU and Columbia was involved at one point, um, and we made a we did a lot of research uh, based on animal models of fear, and used that information to generate hypotheses that we then tested in people with anxiety disorders uh, using functional imaging of the brain um, and so forth. So it was a, it was a great project, but uh, it's uh, sadly coming to an end. Well, that, that's too bad. Uh, talk with our listeners about some of the current projects that you're working on, uh, just in terms of uh, the future, what things to look for. Okay. Well, you know, I guess we're, one thing we do is we, we try to take a very simple form of fear learning, uh, where, the, you know, as I've mentioned, the sound is paired with a shock, because that's a very, very basic form of learning. It, it's basically what it simulates is an animal in the wild that gets wounded and is in pain and has to remember the stimuli that predicted that pain so that it can use that information in the future. So the tone is the, the stimulus predicting the arrival of the predator, and the shock is the uh, slight pain that comes from being wounded by the predator. Uh, and it's a very fundamental form of learning that uh, we want to understand in as much depth as we possibly can in the brain because all of the things we learn about in terms of molecules and, and so forth give us clues about uh, new approaches for drug therapy for fear and anxiety. Mm -hmm. We know that it's relevant to the human brain because we've done studies in, in patients who have damage to the amygdala, and they no longer can undergo that kind of fear learning about tones and shocks and so forth. Uh, and if we do functional imaging in the brain, the amygdala becomes very active in the presence of a tone that predicts a shock. So we have a lot of uh, evidence that the basic work we're doing in the animals on fear, using that simple Pavlovian fear conditioning procedure, is directly relevant uh, to the human brain. And that's why we use that, and that's why we do this research, because we want to understand how to help people. Um, so that's, that's the basic line of research that's our bread and butter. But as I've also talked about, we want to understand not only how people or animals react to danger, but what kinds of actions they take in the face of danger, like you know, running towards the hot dog stand if that's where your kid was when the bomb went off. Um, so we have a, a whole new program that's focused on those questions about emotional action. Uh, another topic is the topic of reconsolidation, which, again, we've talked about a bit, this idea that each time you take a memory out, you have to restore it. Bottom line there, your memory of an experience 
experience is only as good as your last memory of that experience. So imagine a patient or a person, not a patient in this case, a person who has witnessed a crime and they go into the courthouse to testify to the jury about the crime. But what they talk about is what they read in the newspaper rather than what they experienced during the day of the crime. So reading about the crime in the newspaper really reactivated the memory, retrieved the memory, and that's what got stored, and so that's what they remember the next time. So your memory is only as good as your last memory. Each time you use a memory, it changes. So we want to understand, again, more about the biological machinery of those kinds of processes. Uh, and those are, you know, that's a sampling of the, the main topics we're concerned with now. You know, a very interesting point on that. Uh, that means that as you take that memory, retrieve it, it could go back in, either in a more positive way or even, maybe Absolutely. even a, in a negative way. Yep. So, so I guess we have to be cautious with that, even as clinicians, be, sure. ca- be cautious that as we pull those memories out that we aren't leaving them with more wounds or more pain. Absolutely, yeah, the- that's, that's the problem with uh, you know, so-called flooding techniques, uh, where the, the patient is asked to generate all these memories and experiences that are um, damaging, just let, let them flood the mind. Um, I think it's important that you know, if, if the mind is flooded that way, it should be... Uh, um, you should pull the plug at the end and let the water out somehow. Yes, it makes a lot of sense. Now, Dr. Ledoux, I just want to thank you for joining us. Uh, I always ask the guests that I have on the, on the show, if you could give the world any advice, what would that advice be? Well, I think these, um, you know, these very simple um, physical relaxation techniques that have been around for a long time, like tensing muscles and then relaxing them, uh, slow, controlled breathing exercises. There are a number of, you can probably find a, a dozen websites that will you know, instruct you on how to do this, but those are really incredibly helpful. Um, you know, take a meditation class. Uh, or if, if you don't have time for that, just do the breathing. Uh, it, it will slow down that anxiety, lower that level of arousal in your brain, and allow you to be more focused and um, uh, make better decisions. Very good. And the fun thing about that is, is you're talking about something that is simple enough that we can train our brain and practice just to do it. Yeah. yeah. I think, that, you know, I think that schools should teach children this uh, kindergarten, say. So before they develop anxiety, rather than trying to treat anxiety once it develops, if they were taught these tools about how to reduce their fear and anxiety, uh, we might end up with a ha- healthier, happier society where we're less afraid of each other. You know, and as you say, anxiety seems to be something that we are, it's a huge issue in our country. I saw recently that about 40 million Americans suffer with it. So it sure would be good to get an early head start on that. Absolutely. All right. Uh, to our listeners, I want to thank you for joining us. Uh, we've been talking with Dr. Joseph Ledoux. And uh, Dr. Ledoux, I want to thank you personally for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you. All right, and to our listeners, we want to thank you uh, for listening to, to us here on My Expert Solution. We have experts and guests, just uh, qualified, excellent re- uh, researchers, therapists, educators. We want to thank you and have a very good week. And again, Dr. Ledoux, thank you very much. And to our listeners, you guys have a great week.